Um, the question today is, uh, how can you be sure God exists? How can we be sure God exists? All right? So your study guides, I hope, will lead you through some of this conversation. Uh, you can use those for your notes and or to write your letter of resignation from the story, if whatever I say today doesn't sit well with you, which there is a chance. I'm just telling you, there is a chance based on uh, the stuff we're talking about today. Uh, so how can we be sure God exists? Here's what I think. I think outside the church, there is a growing perception that atheism is just blowing up, that atheism is becoming the new normal uh, outside the church, especially in urban centers like Houston, uh, where people seem to be post-religious or post-Christianity or whatever the terms that you hear. If you read CNN.com or if you, you know, read the New York Times or just keep your ear to the door like of the culture, you might think atheism is on the rise. Um, and I just want to say that uh, I have no real problem with atheists in general, uh, but that is not the case. Like, as a percentage of the population, true, pure atheism is not on the rise. As a percentage of the population, people that are purely atheists, meaning they deny any possibility for the existence of God, that group is not really growing. It's growing a little bit, but it's not blowing up like you think. The group that's blowing up is not atheism, it's agnosticism. Agnostics is it's the fastest growing religious segment in America. Uh, agnostics, non-religious, unaffiliated uh, types of people. And so there's a difference. There's a vast difference between atheists and agnostics. Atheists absolutely deny the existence of God and the possibility for God. Agnostics just say, we will never know for sure whether or not God exists. And it seems like an irrelevant question to our daily lives. It has nothing to do with the way I'm living. And so why bother? Why get in these arguments on Reddit? Why, you know, fight with my family at Thanksgiving? Why do any of it uh, if, you know, it's not really worth it? And so the, the, there is a, a huge difference here. Now, what's happening culturally, and the reason everybody thinks atheism is growing so quickly is that atheists like to lump agnostics in with them, right? Atheists like to say agnostics, I've heard it uh, said that agnostics are just cowardly atheists because they actually don't believe in God. They're just afraid to say so. They don't want to, you know, be labeled uh, atheists and face, you know, whatever ramifications there are. But I'll be honest, I have tons of agnostic friends, and that is not my experience. It's also not the statistical truth, because when you read between the lines of census data and other surveys that are done among agnostic and non-religious, unaffiliated people, more than half of them say they're persuaded to believe that there is some intelligence beyond the natural world. Something exists that is responsible for, you know, the universe. But they stop short of saying it's God because they hate religion, and they are fearful of being labeled, you know, any kind of specific, you know, religious group. And so it's not that they necessarily don't believe or that they deny God's existence. It's that they are just so fearful of being called religious that, uh, that they stay agnostic. Now, I'll be honest. Uh, uh, honestly, uh, you know, I have trouble a little bit identifying sometimes with modern day hardcore atheists. 
Uh, even though I used to be one, and I have said before, I'd rather have lunch with a cool atheist than with a crazy religious person, right? So, <laughs> uh, but, but the tenor of the conversation with atheists lately has changed. Actually, the tenor of a conversation with a hardcore atheist reminds me a lot of the tenor of a conversation with a hardcore religious crazy person. They're the same people. They're just saying different things, just a little bit, replace God with no God, and they're the same person. And they're as hateful and as angry and whatever, you know. Atheists today, by and large, this is not all atheists, whatever, you know, but uh, by and large, what I experience hardcore militant atheists to be like, is like they're Dallas Cowboy fans, right? They're a little bit annoying, a little bit arrogant. They think there's more of them in the world than there actually are. <laughs> they watch the Super Bowl every year and they go, next year's our year. Next year's our year. But never quite happens for Cowboy fans and it never quite happens for the atheists either, you know? Agnostics are different. Agnostics are the ones that watch the Super Bowl for the commercials and the halftime show. They have no vested interest in either team because commitment is scary and football is stupid. That's the agnostic view, you know, of, of religion. There is a quite a difference um, between the two. Um, but, but I do want to say that no matter where you are, agnostic, atheist, Christian, somewhere in between, whatever, I just want you to know there's, there's a place for you at the story. Uh, and there will always be a seat for people who are agnostics. Really even make a place for people who are atheists because God loves everybody, even, uh, even Dallas Cowboy fans. So let's, uh, let's move forward with that in mind. I want to talk about three claims that um, non-religious and skeptical people often make about Belief in God, to refute the belief in God, right? Uh, I'm going to fly through those uh, and not do any of them justice, uh, but that's just the nature of the beast here. Uh, and then uh, I'm going to offer, in, uh, to refute those claims, I'm going to offer three questions, better questions that we should be asking uh, instead of uh, some of the things that we normally say and ask. So claim number one, and you can find these on your study guides, claim number one is you can't prove God is real. You can't prove the existence of God. And look, I'm a pastor, and I have no problem saying that's absolutely true. No one can prove the existence of God beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, it just can't be done. I think my personal belief is that God set it up that way so that we would have the freedom to choose God or not, because that's love. But I don't think it's possible for anyone to prove the existence of God. Here's the problem that I have with our, our conversation in our culture right now is that we make this illogical leap from you can't prove God exists to therefore God is not real. And this is a lot, an illogical leap that really smart academic people are making all the time. You can't prove God's real, therefore God does not exist. I'm not sure that's a leap we really want to take because I don't want to like mess up a perfectly good like Valentine's Day for us. But the truth is you can't prove anything is real. Like, I don't want to get all matrixy on you and, like, mess up your romantic mood, but it's conceivable that consciousness itself is an illusion and that none of us are really here. We could be all caterpillars in a cocoon having the same dream right now. Like, it's conceivable. You can't prove that it's not. I could be a shih tzu on a, nap, uh, on a couch, you know, taking a nap. Like, 
uh, dreaming about being a Methodist human right now, right? You can't prove that it's not. So this idea that without verification, nothing is real is not something we want to do because we will wind up canceling everything out if we chase that path too closely. But we are so in love now with verification that we've come to believe, people my age and younger have been conditioned to believe that without scientific proof, nothing is real. Nothing can be true unless it's scientifically verified. Um, and so science becomes the ultimate filter and giver of truth. The problem with that is that any good scientist knows that science cannot be a source of truth. It was never meant to be a source of truth. Science is a good and wonderful thing. I love science. The discovery this week of the waves is amazing. It blew my mind. I love it. Yes. But science cannot be a source of truth. Any good scientist will tell you that. Once science becomes a source of truth, it becomes something else. It becomes just another religion that's run by men with agendas and power. And so science is not that. Science, at its purest form, actually has a lot in common with theology. Because as we talked about a few months ago with our God Loves Science series, science finds its root in theology. So the, the, the ideas of science are rooted in theology. Here's the, the, shared, uh, uh, the shared assumption between theologians and scientists. It is that there's something out there that's good. There's something out there that's true, something that we should uh, give our time and our effort and our energy to know. Right? It's worth it. There's something beyond what we know now that is good and true and worthy, and we should go and try to know that. Good scientists, good theologians have that in common. Bad religion is a lot like bad science. Bad religious you know, thought and bad scientific practice, it's the same thing. They all think they already have the answers. They all think they already know the truth. So there's not really a lot of searching to be done. But good science and good theology, it's all about the assumption that something is capital T true, something can be known, and we're going to do whatever we can to know it. And so that's what we have in common. Good theology, good science are both about plausibility, not certainty. Plausibility. Which gets me to this first question in response to the first claim. Is it more plausible than not to believe that God exists? This is what we should be asking and talking about, I believe. Is it more plausible than not to believe that God exists. Here's one of the most controversial passages in all of the Bible. It's from Genesis 1 because of the creation evolution debate. This is what the Bible says about how it all began. It says, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while the Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. One of the struggles some of you are going to have with this series is that you've never really questioned the existence of God. Because you are what I like to call heart believers. God one day, or maybe lots of days, spoke to your heart, moved in your heart, emotionally you had an experience with God and God's existence has always been kind of a certainty for you and I think that's legitimate. I actually envy people that have that belief but as my wife says, I'm kind of a head case. I need it to make sense in my head before it can ever 
reach my heart. I need reason, I need logic in order to make the case for God's existence. The emotional part of it is not enough for me. So I spent years questioning the existence of God. And if you know my story, through my early 20s and mid to late 20s, I questioned deeply the existence of God. I called myself for a while an atheist. I called myself an agnostic for a while. And I became convinced that Christians believe and follow their hearts, but atheists are smart and they follow their heads. I became convinced that this is what an atheist looks like, while this is what a Christian looks like. And they were starkly different and there were no blurred lines between them. And this was my reality for much of my 20s. But over time, I began to discover writers, um, brilliant Christian authors that my college professors failed to tell me about, like brilliant philosophers like, you know, uh, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Annie Dillard, and Tim Keller, most recently, these people who make these brilliant cases for the existence of God from a place of logic and reason. I came across a book in my late 20s by a man named Francis Collins. A book is, the book is called The Language of God. Collins is a geneticist who was in charge of mapping the Human Genome Project in the 90s, a brilliant man, and he had this to say about the universe and how it came to be. He says, we have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang. I can't imagine how nature could have created itself, and the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies someone was able to begin it. It seems to me that, that it had to be outside of nature. Francis Collins said this, and, and uh, what's interesting is this is what you call the contingency argument, that everything in the universe that exists is contingent upon something else. It's there because some else put it there or created it there or whatever and atheists hate this idea uh, hardcore you know militant atheists especially hate the idea because it's so hard to refute the contingency <clears throat> idea sam harris who is maybe the most outspoken atheist author had this to say in response to collins Sam Harris said, in any case, even if we accepted that our universe simply had to be created by an intelligent being, this would not suggest that this being is the God of the Bible. And Sam Harris nailed it for me here. I want to write him a thank you note for making my point for me because this is exactly the point I'm trying to make. Accepting a belief in God doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you a holy roller. It doesn't make you a snake handler or whatever you're afraid of becoming. You know, it, it just it, it makes you, you know, a theist. And so I think what stands in many people's way of saying, yeah, okay, I think it might be more plausible than not that God exists is this idea that if I do, what will they call me? What will they think about me? What will they say about me? What does that make me? I'm telling you, it doesn't make you anything other than merely a theist. Uh, and I think that fear is what uh, drives many of us, fear of being lumped into a religious category. And here's what's important for us as Christians to understand. That fear exists for a reason, and Christians are largely responsible for it. Because too many people have been hurt by Christians. Too many people have been insulted by Christians. Too many people have been embarrassed by Christians. They watch the news, and some Christians say some awful things. And so we as Christians have to own that. And some of the first words out of our mouths sometimes has to be, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry for what those Christians did to you or said to you or what happened to you at that church or how they're, you know, uh, they've been hateful 
toward you, and I still continue to believe what I told you months ago is that the number one producer of atheists and agnostics in America is not logic or reason or higher education. It's godly people doing and saying ungodly things. And we need to be aware of that as believers. Because I think science and logic and education offer plenty of reason to believe in God if we'll have open minds and level heads about it. And other people uh, who are smarter than me agree. Stephen Hawking, who many of you know of, uh, he said it would be very difficult to explain how the universe began and that it began in just this way except as an act of a God who intended to create beings just like us. Now, Hawking wouldn't say this is proof of God. I'm not saying it's proof. I'm saying it's a clue. I'm saying it's a compelling piece of evidence that we should take into consideration. Belief in God doesn't necessarily make you a Christian or anything in particular, but reflect on this simple question. Is it more plausible than not that God exists, given what you know? I'm going to move on now to the second claim that I've heard uh, people make, and that is that you only believe in God because of when and where you were born. This is a claim that is made a lot. Uh, I've heard it many, many times. Another way of putting it is, uh, had you been born in India instead of the Bible Belt in America, you would not believe the things that you believe. If you had been born in ancient Greece instead of 20th century Western civilization, you would have believed in dozens of gods and goddesses, not the one you claim to believe in now. And so there's another illogical leap people make here is that because, as sociologists say, people tend to believe what the people around them believe and there is a social conditioning process that happens, no belief can be trusted. And no truth is true beyond that small community. And so if you say your truth is truer than someone else's truth, that makes you an arrogant bigot because you can't do that because all beliefs are socially conditioned. And it sounds like a compelling case until you just step back from it and go, this, this statement contradicts itself completely. Because if all belief-forming faculties are the products of social conditioning and can't be trusted, then so is this. If you were born somewhere other than 21st century Western civilization, there's no way you would be an atheist saying all religious beliefs are false, right? You've been socially conditioned to believe these things, which is fine until you say social conditioning cancels out any possibility for truth. That's a terrible reason to believe that nothing is true. Just because people have been socially conditioned to believe different things doesn't mean that some truths aren't truer than others. So here's what I want to say. Yes, absolutely. Being born in the Bible Belt, going to church all your life makes it more likely you're going to become a Christian. Just like being born in San Francisco and your parents sending you to Berkeley makes it more likely that you're going to become pretentious, you know? Uh, (laughs) And or an atheist, you know? Like uh, every part of our lives has an element of social conditioning, including our belief forming faculties, but that's no reason to believe that truth, capital T, doesn't exist and that some truths aren't truer than others. The better question is this, how can we explain the universal human longing for transcendence? How can we explain the universal human longing for God? Now, my atheist buddies, they will say, well, It's the product of evolution. 
at some point in the history of human development, it was beneficial to human beings that they believe in God. It helped humans to survive, to believe in God. And that's why every human civilization, every group of humans who have ever existed, longed for some transcendence, longed for some connection to the divine, because it helped the species to advance. And they will say, it should have gone away, that need for transcendence. Richard Dawkins, the most famous atheist in the world probably, uh, has said that the religious longings of human beings are just uh, evolution gone awry. They're an evolutionary misfire because they're no longer necessary for human uh, you know, advancement, and yet they haven't gone away, and they should have gone away. So they're a little bit like you know, the duck-billed platypus, or they're a little bit like religious convictions, religious longings. It's a little bit like wings on an ostrich. Like not necessarily, uh, Dawkins has said that, that it's, you know, religious longing is a little bit like nipples on a man. And I've never said nipples in a sermon before today. <laughs> it's a little bit freeing to do that. And I promise it'll only be today because it's weird to hear your pastor say nipples. I don't know why it is, but Dawkins says it's a little bit like nipples on a man. Like they, they serve no utility. <clears throat> they don't make any sense. They should have gone away generations ago but they've just hung around because sometimes evolution is weird. That's one explanation for the universal, historic human longing and desire for transcendence. I think it's a pretty awful explanation. I think it lacks in many ways. But there's another explanation. And I discovered this when I discovered C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis lays out a logical argument for the case that our desire for God might be the strongest evidence for God's existence. And just follow me here. It's a three-step deal. C.S. Lewis says, <clears throat> first of all, all natural and universal human desires, such as hunger and thirst, <clears throat> have objects, such as food or water, that satisfy those desires. In other words, there's a reason we desire the things all human beings Desire. There's no fantastical desires that just came out of nowhere and make no sense. Secondly, there exists in all humans a desire which nothing on earth can satisfy. In other words, this desire for transcendence seems to be universal, seems to be natural, just like it says up here, right? And therefore, God must exist as an object or subject that satisfies that desire. Otherwise, how could you possibly logically define or describe or explain the universal longing we have for something outside of nature. So which is more likely, very simple question, which is more likely that the universal human longing for transcendence is like nipples on a man or that belief in God is like hunger and thirst? What has been your experience with the desire for transcendence? What have you experienced other people <clears throat> to, uh, to have that longing. Is it like something that's just no longer useful or is it something natural and universal? Third claim that I want to talk about today <clears throat> is look at all the suffering and injustice. Something is very wrong in the world. Either God is, if God exists, he is either uh, not good or he is not very interested in us. 
There's another place where theists and atheists agree. Something has gone very wrong. But when I talk to atheists, it's weird to hear them say that something has gone very wrong. Compared to what? What is wrong if nothing was right? You follow me? It's weird when I have conversations with my atheist buddies and they talk about evil in the world. Evil has always been a transcendent term to define an ultimate evil or an ultimate wrong in the world. And it would seem logical that if there is an ultimate wrong in the world, there must also be somewhere, somehow, an ultimate right. If there's an ultimate bad, there must be an ultimate good somewhere. Otherwise, there's no balance in the force. And if you've seen The Force Awakens, you know that's a problem. Like, that's a problem. There's no balance in the force. There must be an ultimate good that offsets uh, this ultimate, you know, bad or ultimate wrong. So a uh, philosopher, again, much smarter than me, his name is Alvin Plantinga. He says, could there really be any such thing as evil if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. He says, there can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live the way we ought to live. You don't have ought without some kind of a universal moral, you know, notion. So a secular way of looking at the world has no place for a genuine moral obligation of any sort, and thus no way to say there is such a thing as genuine evil. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as genuine evil, then you have a really powerful argument for the existence of God. In other words, the existence of evil in the world isn't a strong argument against the existence or the goodness of God. It's absolutely an argument for the goodness of God, for his existence if we think it through logically, right? So what I don't want you to hear me saying is that the only way to be good is to believe in God, and the only good people are believers, and evil people are those who don't believe. That is absolutely not <laughs> what I'm saying. That's not been my experience at all. In fact, there's just about as many good people outside the church as there are inside it, okay? I believe that fully. Um, but what I am saying is that the very notions themselves of good and evil make a lot more sense the notions of right and wrong make a lot more sense if God is part of your worldview than if he's not. Okay? Makes a lot more sense from a theistic worldview than from a non-theistic or atheistic worldview. So the third question I want to ask in response to the third claim is how do we know right from wrong? How do we know right from wrong? Had a conversation the other day with a friend of mine. Uh, we've reconnected after many years. We went to high school together. <clears throat> he ended up back here in Houston, and I also came back to Houston, so now we get together once in a while. Uh, he is an agnostic, really smart guy, so we always end up talking about God inevitably, and he, uh, we met at the local poor. Anyone been to the local poor? Pretty great place. Uh, some of you are ashamed to admit you've been to the local poor. Come on. I'm the pastor, and I just said I go to the local poor. You can say it here. It's fine, right? Uh, we're there. Uh, just talking, <clears throat> and outside the window, walking by on the sidewalk outside, are two women wearing hijabs, the headdresses, <clears throat> Muslim headdresses, right? And he kind of gets upset, and he shakes his head, and he goes, you know, in America, we need to pass a law that sets these women free. We need to pass a law that frees these women from their oppression. They are oppressed. And I said, you know what? What makes you say that they're oppressed? And he said, well, they don't have a choice. And I said, hmm, okay. Um, 
what makes you think they should have a choice? And he said, well, they're human beings. And I said, what makes you think human beings have any right to choose for ourselves? Where do those rights come from? He said, this is America. We're a democracy. The rights come from the will of the people. The right, human rights are the result of the majority of the vote, majority of the people. And I said, so you're telling me that morality is handed down by the majority of any given people group. And he knew that I had him. He had that look in his eyes. It's a great look to see when you're in an argument because you know you've got him. And he kind of stammered around. I said, well, what if, you know, he's eating a hamburger. I said, what if the majority of Americans decided tomorrow that it's, it's immoral to eat meat? That could happen one day, conceivably, the way things are headed, right? So, like, a bunch of hippies get involved. Like, they just, you can't eat meat anymore. Is that immoral? Does that make you an immoral person to eat a hamburger? You could say the same kinds of things historically about slavery or war or even the rights of women. I said, the majority of people in the world don't believe that women are entitled to the same basic rights as men. Does that make the fight for women's rights immoral because the majority says so? And he said, I hate it when you do that. And then he bought me a beer, so I would shut up about it. And I, <clears throat> I'm just, I'm wanting us to think through how we know right from wrong, where rights come from. And traditionally, the Christian worldview has been that the reason people have you know, ultimate dignity, the reason individuals have rights, is not because of any majority saying so, it's because every individual is created by the same God. Every individual is endowed with these rights by the Creator, um, equally. And we all have these equal rights. And yes, I know everybody makes jokes at this point in the sermon because Christians seem to be standing in the way of people getting rights sometimes. And it breaks my heart when Christians on the news are like, you know, uh, uh, trying to impede someone's rights or whatever because Christianity, you know, has always been based on the idea of human dignity and human rights and equality of all people because God creates us all the same. And so when you have a Christian worldview, um, the existence of good and evil in the world makes sense because God creates us in his image. His goodness is somewhere inside us, but he also gives us the capacity to do evil. And so good and evil aren't just random things that happen when we vote a certain way. Good and evil make sense because of uh, our worldview and how we understand God to be. So things that go right, things that go wrong make more sense in light of belief in God not less. So in light of these three claims and these three questions, I think the question that really remains is if you're beginning to feel compelled to believe that God exists, what should you expect God to be like? What kind of a person would this God be? In other words, if God created us with an innate sense of what's right, should we expect to find a God who is ultimately good? If God is the reason we know right from wrong, if God created us, all of us, with this innate desire to transcend this world, to transcend reality as we know it, and to connect with some God beyond ourselves, should we expect to find a God who wants to be known? Should we expect to find a God who is relational? Should we expect to find a God who will do whatever it takes to bridge the gap between him and us? 
if our highest ideal, and this is true for theists and atheists alike, I believe, our highest ideal across the board is love. And if our highest ideal is love, and we're made to feel and behave this way, to believe that the highest human ideal is love. And if you're a parent, you know what love is. All of you know what love is, but parents, you would step in front of an oncoming train to prove to your child that you love them. You wouldn't even think twice about ending your life for the sake of your children knowing that they are loved. What kind of God do we expect to find? Do we expect to find a God who will stop at nothing and let nothing stand in the way of his love being known by us? Not even death itself, not even his death. You see, I don't believe that I became a Christian because I was born in the Bible Belt and my parents loved me and took me to church. I believe that I became a Christian because I weighed the options. And I decided a few years back that it's more likely than not that God exists And given everything that we know about the way the world works and the way that we have been created, the God we should expect to find looks and acts and loves a lot like Jesus Christ. Sacrificial. And loving toward us. Stopping at nothing to make sure we know that we're invited to the table. We're invited to the family. Death itself, not even his death, would stand in the way of that. One of my favorite atheists who ever lived was David Foster Wallace, a brilliant writer, a novelist. He was an atheist. But at a commencement address in 2005, he said this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And the only choice we get is what to worship. And the best reason for choosing a God to worship, be it Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or the Four Noble Truths, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. And I don't know what was going on in this man's mind when he said these things. But three years after he said them, he hanged himself on his patio. And this brilliant light went out. But he left us with this shocking truth that everyone worships something. And if you worship something besides God, it will eat you alive, he said. What I'm going to say today is that some of you have been on the fence of faith for a long time now. You've been wandering, you've been restless about this whole God question because you're afraid of what committing to God or belief in God would do to your reputation. You're afraid of what they would call you. You're afraid you'd have to switch political parties. You're afraid that it would make you, you know, a religious weirdo or whatever. I'm going to tell you right now, and this might, some of you might never come back. God could not care less who you vote for. 
this fall. God could not care less what political party you belong to or what denomination you are or how religious you become. I believe that in my heart. God could not care less because what I believe about God is that he created you for relationship. To be in relationship with him, he created you because he wanted, like a father, to know you. To know you. And he wanted to be known by you personally and intimately. He wants that more than anything else. St. Augustine, 1,700 years ago, said, You created us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. If your heart has been restless, I'm just, I'm praying, I'm hoping that today, today right now will be a time that you open your heart to a new reality. That you open your heart to the possibility that God exists and who created you for a purpose. And that purpose is relationship with him. All you have to do to start, say yes. Say, okay, I think I believe God meet me where I am. Let's pray.